morning, Southbridge. Thank you so much for coming today and uh, worshiping the Lord with us. So we sing that song, His love never fails and never runs out. And think about sometimes we turn our back on God, sometimes we run from Him, but we can't outrun His love. And you read the book of Jonah, I'll give you a testimony of that. No matter how disobedient we're trying to be, we can never go beyond what His love can reach. We can never sin beyond what the cross paid for. And so it's great to be together to celebrate Jesus. We're a church that exists to connect people to Jesus for life change. If you're a guest with us today, it's your first time, or you haven't been, been here in a long time, I just want to welcome you and tell you that we've got a little card that we put inside our worship program. We call it a connection card. If you wouldn't mind taking it out right now and filling that out, and you can drop it in the offering box on your way out, or you can take it out to the first time guest kiosk. If you take it out there, we've got a gift for you, and uh, we're going to use uh, you turning that in to impact and bless someone else. Your worship program talks about that, and so you can go ahead and look at that. Also, that card, we use it for everybody. So if you're part of this church, you've got a prayer request. We've got a team of people that pray for the requests regularly. If you make a decision for Jesus today, we'd ask you to use that card. If you'd like to be baptized, we're going to be doing baptisms again the week after Easter. And so if you'd use that card to indicate that information, that'd be great. You can drop them in the offering boxes as well. And then also, if you're a first-time guest today, or maybe you're newer to this church over the last month or so, um, and we've never met, or maybe even going here for years, and somehow we've never met. Um, we have Discovering Southbridge today. That means there's going to be a blue tent out in the lobby. Underneath that blue tent, I'm going to be out there. I would love to meet you, and there's going to be another pastor out there with me, as well as some other leaders from our church, and just want to be able to answer any questions you might have about the church, general trivia, uh, whatever you'd like to ask. Uh, we'll be out there, and uh, would love to meet you, so please come over there, say hello. Um, doesn't make you a member of our church or anything like that, but if there's any questions you have about that stuff, we'd love to answer them, tell you as much about us as we can, so you can figure out if this is the church for you. And uh, one of the things we do every week is we open up the scriptures. We've been going through the book of Acts. We're going to be back in chapter 19 today. So grab your copy of the scripture or your phone or whatever it is you use. Um, Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we'll jump right into the text today. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the gathering of believers that we can encourage one another and love each other and care for one another. And I pray that those things would happen here today. And I pray as we open up your word that you'd reveal yourself. I pray you'd hide me behind your cross, and you'd only have me say things that you want said. And I pray that you'd speak words that are exactly what your Holy Spirit wants to speak into the hearts of individuals with all the different things that are happening, some in victorious moments, some in tragedy and trial, and um, lots of people in between, that you supernaturally would speak. Speak through your word. Have us see you today. Have us encounter you and know you more and pierce our hearts. Change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, today I want to talk to you about a topic that I'm confident applies to each one of us today. I am 100% sure that it applies to 100% of the people that are hearing my words right now. And you say, well, how do you know that? Do you ever hear TV commercials that do those dentist things? They're selling toothpaste or whatever, and it's like, nine out of ten, dentists recommend. And I always think to myself, did they ask my dentist? Like, does he recommend? You know, is that what he says? The doctor? Is it just some guy in a lab coat? Is he really a dentist? Like, what's, what's happening there? Or seven out of ten Americans believe. I always think to myself, no one asked me. Like, how do they, I thought, I'm American, last I checked, so why, how do they know that I, 70% of me believes that part of the thing? And so you might think to yourself, how do you know that what you're going to say today, Scott, applies to all of us? We haven't talked about this this week. Well, what I'm going to talk to you about today is the number one cause of death in the world. It's the number one reason why marriages fail. It's the reason why we blow it as parents with our kids. It's the reason why we have problems in the workplace. What I'm going to talk to you about today is the number one reason why you don't experience life the way that you know in your heart you've been designed to experience life. What we're talking about today is sin. We call it lots of things in our culture. Uh, we try to water it down and we say, you know, you didn't cheat on your taxes, you miscalculated. 
Uh, you didn't cheat on your spouse. You made a mistake. But it's sin. And we don't like to talk about it. And you could easily get the idea from the message. Oh, he talked about sin. He's a pastor, so he's supposed to be against it. And so that's the gist of the message. But think about what sin is. We all do it. The Bible says, for everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. Every person since Adam and Eve has ever been created has sinned. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us that death entered the world through sin. Through one man's sin, Adam, death entered the world. It's the number one cause of death. It's why death is here and part of this world. Before there's car accidents, before there's cancer, before there's any diseases, heart attacks, there's sin. It's the root cause of all the problems that we have in any relationship. It's the root cause why anything's not right in this world. It's the number one reason for every imprisonment, sin. It's the issue. And here's the really sad part. Many of us don't even realize we're doing it. The Proverbs say this about sin. It says there's a way that seems right to us, to man, to woman. But in the end, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to slaughter. And some of us are on this path of death, and we don't even realize that we think we're doing the thing that's going to bring us the satisfaction we're lacking. We think, when we know in our heart we're not experiencing life the way we want to, and we think we go our way, and we do what we think is right, that's sin. And it's ruining us. And many of us don't even realize how active it is in each one of our lives and the battle that we're in with it. And today we're going to talk about the seriousness of sin. And here's what I don't want you to be thinking about. I don't want you to think about sin as a concept. I don't want you to just think about the world is sinful. We're all sinners, kind of vague generalities. I don't want you to think about cultural sin. Oh, the country's having problems because of abortion or because of corporate greed or because of whatever thing that you think of, the sexualization of the media. It's not that. I don't want you to think about that. I definitely don't want you to do this. Well, we're talking about sin. I'm glad I'm sitting next to this person. You know, don't want you thinking about somebody else's sin. I see elbows going. Come on now. Don't think about your sin. Think about your sin today and be specific. Think about your lust. Think about your pride. Think about your jealousy. Think about your conceit, your boastfulness, your self-deprecation, which actually is evidence you think about yourself a lot, your self-centeredness, your gossip, your slander, your lying. Why is it that you want to click that click on the computer? Why is it that you are okay with being impatient? Why is it that we joke about some of our sins? Why is it that we minimize this stuff? What is it? Think about yourself. Today we're going to talk about the seriousness of sin. Acts chapter 19. We're actually going to start reading some verses we read last week, but didn't spend much time in. Verses 17 through 20. And we're picking up where we were at last week, obviously, as we've been going through the book of Acts. And remember last week we were talking about power and the power struggle that oftentimes goes on in many of our hearts. And there's a struggle between those of us who recognize God's power and we surrender to it, and God uses us, or to be on the other end of the spectrum, we saw another group of people in the passage last week, specifically in verses 13 through 16, of people who understand God's power, that God's more powerful than them, but what we try to do is then try to use him. So there are those that are being used by God because they're surrendered to God's power, and there are those that are trying to manipulate God to help them accomplish their ends. And we saw the guys in verses 13 through 16 last week were trying to get a professional benefit from using the name of Jesus. The root cause of their issue was pride, and we saw that God actively opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The people in our passage today saw those very things, and they responded to it. Oftentimes when there's a major event, it causes us to reflect on things. If you go to a wedding, or you go to a funeral, or sometimes even birthday parties, or retirement parties, or any of those types of things that are big in someone else's life, a lot of times it causes us to reflect on our own. Be at a wedding and think about your commitment to your spouse, be at a funeral and think about your life and 
These people saw that God was actively opposing the proud. It caused them to evaluate. What it caused them to evaluate was their sin. And really, this week's passage is similar to last week's in the way that Luke structures it. And there's a contrast. The people we see in verses 17 through 20, the first chunk, are fighting against sin. The people we're going to see in the second half of the passage, all the way through verse 41, are people who are either surrendering to sin or fighting for their sin to try and hang on to it. And we have to ask ourselves as we think about our own sin, am I fighting against sin? Am I surrendering to sin? Or am I maybe even fighting for my sin? Let's look at the first group. Verse 17, Acts chapter 19. It says, when this became known to the Jews, this situation where these people were humbled, that God's opposing the proud but giving grace to the humble, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, this is all the people, mass response, they were all seized with fear. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Now we get some individual responses. Verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Verse 19, another thing they do, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Here we see people in this part of the passage of Scripture, they're fighting against sin. We see two tools or two things that we can do to fight against sin. They confess their sin, they openly confess it to one another, and they radically repent of their sin. You see that through the burning of the scrolls. So verse 18, you see them confessing. Verse 19, you see them repenting. They're battling against sin. And so you have to ask yourself, am I in a fight against sin? The classic book on sin in Christianity was written a few hundred years ago by a guy named John Owen. It's called The Mortification of Sin. It means the death of sin. In that book, he says this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. See, we're in a battle. The Apostle Paul later writing to these Ephesian believers in the church in Ephesus. Later on, we have a book in the Bible, we call it the book of Ephesians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to this church to encourage them. And he writes to them about the spiritual battle that we're in. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, he says, for our battle, some translations, our struggle, the NIV, is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, we're in a spiritual battle. The problem is, I believe, many of us in the American church and the American culture don't even realize it. Maybe it's because we dumb sin down and we call it other stuff, mistakes, accidents, messed up, all that kind of stuff. Maybe it's because we don't talk about it that much at all, whether it's in the church or whether it's in culture. I was reading a book a couple weeks ago by Russell Moore, called Tempted and Tried. It's about the temptations of Jesus. In the very first chapter, he starts off by telling this story. And the story is he's riding in his car and he starts listening to the radio. And on the radio, he hears this noise off in the background. And the noise sounds kind of like a summer thunderstorm or like a train on railroad tracks from really far away. It's rhythmic, kind of soothing. It's building. And he finds out that the noise that he's listening to on the radio is actually cattle on their way to be slaughtered. Very enjoyable listening, isn't it? And what it was is a public radio broadcast, and they were telling this story about this scientist who had been researching um, cattle and different animals and the noises they make and how they're stressed. And he was talking about how the beef industry is actually very interested in what stresses animals out. And now you might think to yourself, well, that's nice. I mean, they kill those cows and stuff, but they they don't want them to get stressed out. Let me tell you why. Uh, The reason why is because when they get stressed out, their hormones um, go into the meat and it downgrades the meat. So they've got a vested interest in this deal. So if you're a humanitarian, you know, animal lover or whatever, just isn't it feel good? It's nice. If you like meat, it makes the meat taste better. Okay. Everybody should be happy with what they're doing in this situation. But what they ended up telling was 
that they hired this scientist, all these different beef um, producers hired this scientist to come in and tell them, how can we make it so that the cow doesn't get stressed out and we have better meat? And what she ended up saying, the scientist, was that the key for the cow was no novelty, nothing new, no newness. And the story that she gave was, if a cow sees a yellow jacket hung on a fence post every day, it's no big deal. If the first time a cow sees a yellow raincoat hung on a fence post is the day it goes to the slaughterhouse, it gets stressed out. And she goes on, she says, don't yell at the cows, don't prod the cows, they don't need any of that stuff. The key is to make them comfortable and content. And so what some of the, the major industries, have, our major uh, beef uh, producers have done is they've actually got this intricate uh, conveyor belt system that they put the, the cows on the day that they're going to slaughter them. It simulates them walking home. The same experience they have every day, no major turns. It just kind of winds and goes and then whoo! Traumatic blunt force trauma to the brain and it's dead and you think well good then the meat tastes better because it didn't know it was coming or it was very kind to the cow well here's the real issue it's a lot like many of us just keep us content and comfortable we get lulled to sleep through our sin just run your errands go to church do your job Check the mail, take the garbage out, do the dishes, pick up the kids, go to the doctor, whatever it is that you have to do, and just kind of do your thing as long as you have a job and as long as the bills are paid and don't think much about this stuff. There's a way that seems right to man. And it's like that conveyor belt those cows are on. But in the end, it leads to death. Many of us don't realize how serious our sin is and how active it is in our lives. See, our sin is so serious. We just sang a song that said the only thing that could pay for it was God's own blood. See, it was so serious that Jesus Christ had to die for our sin. See, God sent his only son. It was the only way. He wanted to know you so desperately, and you were so trapped in your sin. There was no other way other than for him to send his son, Jesus Christ. That's not just a story in the Bible. That's God really sending his son, putting him in the flesh, taking him from heaven, a place where he's hearing, holy, 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 hallelujah, praises to his name, where he can be slandered, lied about, mocked, beaten, gruesomely murdered, so his blood could flow, so your sins could be forgiven. Because it's the only way your sins could be paid for. Nothing for sin can atone except for the blood of Jesus. So he became sin so you could become his righteousness. But what ends up happening is that actively here, practically speaking, we're still in a battle with sin. Either you're killing it or it's killing you. So what one is it? And what we see in this passage of scripture are some people that decided they're going to get serious about fighting their sin. All of the people, verse 17, when this became known, that God opposes the proud, his grace to the humble, the Greeks and the Jews, all of them, living in Ephesus, all the people in this town, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. It doesn't mean they all believed. This is in verse 18, though. Many of those who believed now came, openly confessed their evil deeds. It actually literally reads, they kept coming, they kept confessing. It was multiple people that kept coming over and over again and confessing their sins. But go back to that one word there. It's very key. And we, we mentioned it last week. We didn't camp out on it. Many of those who believed. These were people who had already believed. The Greek tense, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Greek tense of this word implies that this is an, something that happened in the past, not right now. This isn't the point of them coming to faith in Jesus Christ. This isn't when they walked an aisle, raised a hand, prayed a prayer to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. They've already done that in the past. What we're seeing now are some of the results of that. And so that's key because that blows out of the water a couple false ideas that occur in church culture. One of them I mentioned last week, and I'll say it again. Another one we didn't talk about, and I feel like for believers we've got to camp out on for a moment. The first one is this. Some people come with this false idea 
that maybe you've been attending Southbridge for a little while and, and you think to yourself, I know that I'm supposed to surrender my life to Jesus and I know what the pastor says, I know what other people think, but if I do that, I've got to give up my weekends. If I do that, I've got to stop cussing. I've got to fill in the blank with whatever you think the thing is, you've got to get yourself right before you can surrender to God. That's not how it works. You surrender to God. You surrender to Jesus Christ. Then he begins a work in you. See, these people are confessing sin. They are already believers. These are believers who are actively involved in sin. In fact, the the word evil deeds at the end of verse 18 is a technical term for sorcery. They're involved in magical acts. These are Christians involved in witchcraft. It isn't just like mamby-pamby type sin. This is serious stuff. And they're coming, they're openly confessing this. What does this mean for us as believers? Here's where I want to camp out for a moment. There's an unsaid thing that happens in church that I've learned since I've become part of uh, a church person. I didn't grow up going to church, came to church later, and so the whole culture of church was a shock to me at one point, but I've kind of adapted, assimilated, so I'm part of it now. And one of the things that we produce, unsaid, is you can do any kind of sin in the world before you become a Christian, but after you're a Christian, I mean, we only accept certain ones. So you can get up here, or somebody else can get up here, whoever, uh, and tell a story, and we can talk about all the things we did, all the, you know, sleeping around, all the drinking, all the partying, uh, maybe divorced, maybe you murdered somebody. If you murdered somebody, you have a really powerful story if it happened before your conversion. But after conversion, you're not supposed to, it's just like not allowed. You don't do any of that kind of stuff. Let me tell you something, that really stinks if you've been a Christian for a long time. Not just people who became Christians when they were little kids, but if you've been a Christian for any period of time, it really stinks. Here's why it stinks. Not because you don't get to sin, but because when you do sin, and you do, when you do sin, you can't tell anyone about it. Doesn't that sound diabolical? That Satan would produce that culture in our churches? where If somebody gets up and talks about getting divorced, it's like, oh, that was before you were saved. Somebody gets up and talks about murdering somebody, that was before you conversion point. Well, what if it wasn't? Did Jesus not die for those sins too? And we don't get to talk about it. Well, these people said, no, 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 we're going to talk about it. We've got to deal. We're in a battle here. We can't lose this battle. This is a battle for our souls. And so you see what they do. These believers who are involved in witchcraft, they get up. They keep coming. They keep confessing. And look at what it says. The NIV says they openly confessed. Some of your translations say they divulged. They're sharing with other people in the gathering, with not just them and God, with other people they're confessing their sin. Now, that would mess with some of you. I know your background. I've uh, got all kinds of different church backgrounds here. Some of you, Catholic background, you think, well, I don't have to go to a priest. And, or maybe you're fundamentalist and you're told, don't do what the Catholics do. And that kind of thing happened. Or some other background. And if somebody stood up right now and said, I'm done playing games with my sin. I'm o-, and they just spouted off, here's, here's who I am. This is what I do. And I'm done with it. Most of us would be like, Scott, what are you going to do? Like, we don't, what's going to happen? It's like weird. Well, it shouldn't be weird. We see it's happening in the, the scriptures and we're commanded to actually do this thing, but we don't do it, do we? I emailed a group of friends, some male, some female, some older, some younger, and asked them, why don't we confess sin to one another? I got a variety of answers. I want to read them to you. Some of them may be what you would say, and you probably have a better list if you were to just make it up on your own, but I'm going to read you some of the things that were sent to me. Why don't we confess to one another? First thing that I was sent was shame. We're embarrassed. Specifically, we're embarrassed that we would do the things that we do. And so we're then trapped in a persona that we create, that we think everyone else believes about us. And so we're too ashamed or embarrassed to share our sin. The second thing that was sent to me was pride. (laughs) They really go together, don't they? Because we think so highly of us, which also shows that we think very low of what Jesus did for us on the cross. 
I got this. I can handle this. I don't need anybody else, right? Lots of fear responses. Here are a few of them. Fear of repercussions. Fear of being known. Fear of the unknown. Fear of disappointing someone because we've created a persona. Here's a humble one. Not knowing how. I don't know how to confess to someone. It's so odd for us to do it. We don't even know how to do it. Here's an idea. Go to them and just say, someone you trust, maybe in your small group, maybe here today, and just say to them, can I share something with you? And then tell them, confession is this. Some people don't even know what confession is. Confession is when you say about your sin the same thing that God thinks about your sin. He hates your sin. It's the very thing that separates you from relationship with him, that stops you from experiencing the abundant life that he came to give you, that stops you from experiencing him, which is what you're lacking. And so you say about your sin, and it's just your sin. I was talking to our shepherding pastor. We kind of, Jason and I, we were talking in the office, um, and he, he's okay with me sharing some of this stuff. But I told him, sometimes we use our opportunity to confess, to confess other people's sin. And I said, it'd be like if Shanna sinned. Of course, she would never sin against me, okay? She's not in here. Don't go tell her I said this, but here's the deal. It'd be like if Shanna sinned against me, did something to wrong me, made me angry. And I stood up before you and said, I want to confess my sin of anger because of what Shanna did. Bam, 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 bam. And I start telling you all the bad stuff. We're really good at confessing other people's sin, most of us. Here's how I was hurt. Here's how I was wronged. Here's, what, here's the justification for why I did my anger, for what loss of temper, whatever the thing. No, no, no. Confession is saying what you did. Being honest about it and saying what God thinks about it. This person saying, I don't know how. There's a way how. Some people say we don't need to confess that. It's not that big of a deal. That's minimizing our sin. That's very common and it's been going on for centuries. Genesis chapter 3 Surely you won't die. Not, your sin's not that big of a deal. I mean, God, I mean, God died for like the big ones. That's one reason why we don't sin. Here's an honest one. I like my sin and I'm not ready to give it up. I have too much to lose by being found out. How about this one? This person actually wrote it this way. So I'm going to read it to you in quotes. Uh, the lie that it will hurt them more if they know, so I shouldn't tell them. If I... Sin against them. Now, I'm going to challenge you. If you believe this one, go read Matthew chapter 5, where God actually says, if you have sinned against your brother or your brother has sinned against you, here's what you do. You leave your gift on the altar because your worship's meaningless to me. You go make that right. Then you come back and you worship. I've actually heard people say and thought they were giving godly counsel before that they've told people this idea. Don't tell so-and-so because you'll hurt them. It'll just hurt them more by them knowing. The example that I was given that comes to my mind is I remember when I first moved to town here, a uh, gentleman t- telling me about one time he counseled a, a guy who cheated on his wife. Don't tell her because it'll just hurt her more knowing. So we're talking about the one relationship where it's based on a covenant that you've made before God. There's only three people in that covenant. Two of them know what's going on and one of them doesn't. And the relationship's built on a lie then. Not only that, you've just sentenced that husband to a life of a prison of secrecy. And you think that's God's plan. But we use that. You know what the real reason is? It goes back up to pride. It goes back up to fear. We don't have the courage to confess our sin. So there's some reasons why we don't. I'm sure there are others that I didn't mention. Here's some reasons why we should. Number one, God said to. James chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's a healing that takes place. Sometimes it's in the physical context. I believe it's also an emotional and spiritual healing that takes place. Number two, number two reason I have on here, freedom. David, in his sin with Bathsheba, you can read about it in 2 Samuel. He writes about it in the Psalms. He talks about what it was like to not confess his sin. He says in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. 
through groaning all day long. Anyone who's holding on to a secret sin, you know what this is talking about. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Pause and reflect on that. See, there's something that happens when we confess our sin that the sin loses some power over us. There's an interesting dynamic with the magical culture that's taking place in Ephesus. It's one of the reasons why the book of Ephesians has so many statements about power in it is that Ephesus was a, a magical community. Magical theory taught that your spell only had power as long as it was secret. The power was in the secrecy. If you were a sorcerer, you didn't divulge that information to other sorcerers because then the spell loses its power. What are they doing here when they're confessing it? They're sharing their spells. It's not going to have power over me anymore. It's the very thing that happens in confession. Some other things. Think about what it does for the relationship with the person you confess to. There's lots of things that can happen here. Some of them are scary. Some people say, well, what if, I, what if I go to confess my sin and they don't forgive me? Oh, well, you can't control that. The Bible does say, however, if they don't forgive you, God doesn't forgive them. But that's on them. What about this? They can relate with you. Some of you go to confess sin to someone. You know what they say to you? I know. I already knew that was your sin. See, we think, we oftentimes think we got everybody fooled. But they already know. Some people may say to you, me too. That's, that, I struggle with the same thing. Maybe we can help each other. There's a bond that takes place. How about this one? You get to hear the words you're forgiven. The very things we're told in the passage of Scripture, like 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he's faithful, he's just. He'll forgive you of your sins. Cleanse you of all unrighteousness. To get to actually audibly hear those words from the mouth of a human being. That's God demonstrating his love for you through a person. You get to experience tangibly grace. We get to be known by someone. But many of us, we won't because of what we might lose. Because we're afraid. Because of our pride. Because of our shame. Let me ask you this. Jesus asked this question. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? We're in a battle for our souls. And so you kept your marriage together for 60 years and you lost your soul in the process? That was worth it. You got the watch at retirement. You kept your job, whatever it is you're afraid of losing, but you lost your soul. See, these people realized how serious sin was. And so in verse 18, they're confessing it. In verse 19, we see radical repentance. Go to verse 19. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together, burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Drachma was about a day's wages. You're financial people here. It's about 137 years worth of money. It's a lot of money. But why does Luke tell us that? It's not just so we can figure out the dollar amount. Now, it is interesting that Jesus also says in the New Testament, when he's talking about not being able to have two masters, he uses money as the example. Can't serve God and money. That's a very common one. But more than that, the scrolls aren't just financial. Think about what the scrolls represent. These guys are magicians that are confessing this sin. This is their livelihood. This is their job. This is their security. This is their comfort. This is their retirement plan. This is how they get their contentment. Just keep them comfortable and content. Like the cows on the conveyor belt. There's a way that seems right. I said, no, we're, you're either fighting sin or sin's killing you. And so they're fighting sin. And then verse 20, look at what it says. It says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread, spread widely. And we saw last week when we were looking at this passage that everyone in the region had heard in a three-year time period. It's because of stuff like this. And it grew in power. Sometimes people ask the question, why doesn't God work like he, in the church now like he did in the book of Acts? Well, the church is different. We play games with sin. We don't take it that seriously. We're not going to confess it to another person because of whatever rationalization, justification we come up with in our mind. And we're not a cleansed church. 
And they were. And God was working with power. There were those that were fighting against sin. Unfortunately, there were other people too that were surrendering to sin. Or that were even fighting for their sin. And we see them in the next part of the passage. Verses 21 through 23 really give us a travel log for Paul. As now what's happening in the book of Acts is he's transitioning, focusing now on his trip to Jerusalem to drop off an offering there, and then to go to Rome. And that's where the book of Acts ends up. Verse 24, though, shows us a contrast to verses 17 through 20. Those that were fighting against sin. Now we've got those that are fighting for sin or submitting to sin. So in verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business for the craftsmen. So this guy not only made money for himself off of this, this guy's a leader. He brought in money for everybody else, like a business owner. Verse 25, he called them together along with the workmen in, in related trades, and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And so here's the real issue. Verse 26. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus. How did he lead them astray? It says, and in practically every, the whole province of Asia, this is what he says. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. And we covered this when we were back in Acts chapter 17. We talked about idolatry. Idolatry is anytime we worship creation rather than the creator. Anytime we worship man-made things rather than the one who made man. Anytime we worship something other than God. And I asked you, and you audibly responded to me. Some of you may remember, in Acts chapter 17, what are some of our idols in this culture? And you listed off things like our kids, our cell phones, our cars, our houses, uh, sex, food, exercise, money, all kinds of stuff. Anytime we go to those things for our comfort, for our security, for our contentment, that's idolatry. And this guy's saying, how ridiculous to teach that you're not supposed to go to those things. And they, you're messing with our money, is what Demetrius is saying. Of course that's our security. Of course that's our comfort. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name and we lose money, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the province of Asia, isn't just Ephesus, everywhere. And the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so he gives a speech. Demetrius is a good leader. He gives a speech that talks about money, the economy, talks about country, pride, and talks about God, their God, Artemis. He should, be, he should run for office. God, country, and money, all in one talk. Look what happens. That's what happens anytime you mess with someone's idol. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, Artemis was their symbol for God. There was a temple there, and the ancient world was one of the seven wonders of the world. It had 127 pillars that were 60 feet tall. It's huge. Four times the size of the Parthenon we talked about in Athens. They believed that the goddess had fallen from heaven. It was probably a meteorite that somehow resembled a woman with many breasts. She was a fertility goddess. Think about the emotions tied into this in a moment. So if you've ever tried to have a child or know somebody who's struggled to have a child, fertility is a big deal. People would travel from all over the world. Now think about what it's like in our culture and then add to that their hope in their children, their hope that their children would take care of them, their hope that their children would be their retirement plan. There were many things that were very pragmatic, not just this is my baby, not just my namesake. Fertility was a big deal. And it was believed around the, this part of the world at least, she was the most popular of all the cult goddesses, that this was how you got pregnant. Not only that, the temple of Artemis was a bank. People actually brought their money, deposited there, not just as a worship offering to the goddess Artemis, but to hold their money that they'd be divinely looked over. Now, there was a scandal taking place at this time. We have documents that show us that. But as a bank, not only that, there were many people who made money off of the temple of Artemis. So she represents fertility and she represents money. 
And Paul threatens that, not because he's picketing Artemis or yelling with a bullhorn, don't worship that goddess. He's proclaiming the one true God and saying anything that's been created is not a true God. It's like Romans chapter 1 says that we believe a lie. And we worship creation rather than the creator. And you can read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and we do all kinds of detestable things. We de-evolve. The things that we do are so base. As a result of the belief that we're going to find security, we're going to find comfort, we're going to find anything that we're placing our trust in created things. Those are our idols. Where we run to at times of escape, the thing that we go to. It could be food, could be sex, could be our bank account. It could be things that we perceive as good things, like exercise, like church. We have this ability to transform these things into idols. John Calvin says the human heart is like an idol factory. When you mess with that idol, that's why people get mad when you talk about money at church. When you mess with that idol, people get upset. And that's what that says in verse 28. These guys are furious. And what they do is they get the whole town involved. Verse 29. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. Now in Ephesus, they had people living, about 200 people an acre. Let that sink in for a minute. 200 people in an acre. It doesn't take long for word to spread in a community like that. The way Ephesus was set up, there was one main road thoroughfare that went through the whole town from the harbor to the main theater. The theater, archaeologists have, have found in, in shape very similar to probably what it was, it seats 24,000 people. It says here, uh, they, they got the whole city in an uproar, and the people seized Gaius, not the Gaius from Third John probably that we talked about recently, and that other name that I won't read that's very difficult to read right there. You can read it yourself. These are Paul's traveling companions that are out talking about the kingdom of God, talking about the gospel like we talked about last week, the good news of Jesus' death for our sin. They grab a hold of those guys and they rush with one purpose into the theater. What do you think that purpose is? They're going to destroy these men. They're angry. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Paul's thinking 24,000 people in one stadium, I'm going to preach the gospel. And they say, no, 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 no. They'll tear you apart, Paul. And it's going to tear your friends apart. And it's going to cause more problems in this city. And then look at verse 31. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him, repeatedly begging him, not to venture into the theater. Don't go in there, Paul. And the very fact these are friends of his, these, this, these officials of the province were people who promoted emperor worship. They believe the opposite thing is Paul. What does that tell us about Paul? All of his friends weren't believers. And he's got some friends that are pretty influential. And they're begging him repeatedly, don't go, Paul. It's going to cause more problems. And so he doesn't go. So what happens with the assembly? Verse 32. It says the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most people didn't even know why they were there. <laughs> Can you see that chaos there? Imagine this. The Jews pushed Alexander. The Jews probably wanted to disassociate from the Christians. Hey, we weren't the ones. We're not with that Paul guy. And so they pushed this Alexander guy to the front. We don't know who he is. It's a common name. And some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. This is what you should do. And he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. Verse 34. But when they realized he was a Jew, Jews don't believe in idol worship either. When they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine chanting anything for two hours? This is this false god they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Some of us have a hard time worshiping the king of kings for 20 minutes. Two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Have you ever seen anything like that? Ever been to a basketball game? 
Just saying. <laughs> Paul preaching against idolatry in this community would be like if I got up and started talking about how bad basketball is here, which I'm not saying, by the way. Keep your stones. These people are ticked off because you're messing with their idol. Many of them didn't even know why they were there. But you mess with my comfort and my contentedness. But we know the leaders, they knew. Back in verse 28, it said they were furious. Back in verse 24, Demetrius said, he, bring, he brings in a lot of money, not only for himself, but for other people. Verse 25, it was their money. And they weren't going to have somebody messing with their idol. And so they're fighting for their sin. Some of them are just surrendered to their sin. They don't even know why they're there. They're going with the flow, but they know that their comfort and their contentment is being shaken up. It's what happens when you mess with someone's idol. They get angry. It's like this. You ever been in a place uh, on an airplane, um, in the mall, at a movie, uh, at church, and you see a, maybe a restaurant. You see a small child, a baby, and I'm talking like little babies, brand new babies up to about two years old, and they start going nuts. Like they're just, it's irrational. They're just upset. And the parent pulls out a pacifier, sticks a pacifier in their mouth. Those things are like magic, by the way, as a parent. And we use them on our two oldest children. Some kids use other things, blankets, teddy bears, whatever it is. But uh, you stick a teddy, you stick a, not teddy bear in their mouth, but you give them their teddy bear, you give them their blanket, you stick the passy in their mouth, whatever it is. Here, have you ever seen that? Seen that before? Kids, they're awesome. You put them in their mouth, they go to sleep. You put them in their mouth, they're all upset. All of a sudden they're calm. It's just, it's great. They have a little ring around their mouth and they're done, but it's, it's awesome. Here's what I want you to do. Next time you see this happen, maybe at church today, see some kid lose it. Parent throws a pacifier in their mouth. Go up, grab the pacifier, stick it in your pocket. See what happens. You'd probably be dealing with the parents because we like the passy too. What is the pacifier or blanket or teddy bear? It's a source of security. It's a source of comfort. It's a source of contentment. There's no power in a blanket or a pacifier in and of itself. But to us, it's security in that moment. It's comfort. It's contentment. What's yours? Probably not a blanket or a pacifier or a teddy bear. But what is your source of security? What is your source of contentment? What is your place of comfort? Where do you go when it gets tough? How do you escape? If you can answer that question, you're probably real close to identifying your idol. Because it's any place other than the living God, he's the only one that can actually handle our burdens. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your souls. The idea that we would go to anyone or anything else, another person, a relationship, a bank account, uh, fill in the blank, is pure madness. Now, we might not respond like a baby whose pacifier is taken or like a crowd who's upset in a riot. But inside, what's going on? It's madness. I'm going to read you a quote by Ed Welch. He describes sin. He calls it that. Ed Welch is a Christian counselor, writes some really solid theological things. He says this, there are many ways to describe sin. It is disobedience, missing the mark, hatred, treason, spiritual adultery, self-centeredness. The list can go on. Among these descriptions is that sin is madness or insanity. It is irrational, delusional, unreasonable. It makes absolutely no sense in light of God's love toward us. See, any sin is a violation of the greatest commandment. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In that moment, you're choosing that circumstance, that click on the computer, your bank account, whatever it is, over God. That's what you're trusting in. That's where you're going to. That's idolatry. It's madness when you consider 
the God of the universe who created those very things you're worshiping, wanted you so bad, he gave his son. Not a story, real thing. He gave his only begotten son for you and for me. Because we couldn't stop lying. We couldn't stop lusting. We couldn't stop losing our temper. We couldn't stop being impatient. We couldn't stop our sin. We couldn't fix our problem. And so he fixed it for us. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you surrender to that, then you enter into a battle. A battle with sin. Either sin's killing you or you're killing sin. What's happening? Are you fighting against your sin? Are you surrendering to your sin? See what happens next in this passage up through verse 41 is a city clerk comes in. He's basically the mayor would be a way that you could translate that in modern day language. And he says to the people, Artemis is great. Everybody knows that she fell from heaven. And so you can't deny Artemis. He sincerely probably believes this. Now he's wrong because he's saying to them essentially, your worship of Artemis is going to go on no matter what this guy says. Don't worry about what this guy says. Well, no one's worshiping Artemis today. Millions of people are worshiping Jesus. He was sincerely wrong. He says to the people, now you need to calm down or Rome's going to get upset. And what happens is not mass conversion. This isn't one of those stories where all of a sudden all this revival breaks out here. Now it broke out amongst the believers in verses 17 through 20, those who were fighting against sin. But for most people, what ended up happening is they were surrendering to their sin. So they leave. You know what they do? They go back to their lives and they run their errands and they do the dishes and they make the meals and they go to the doctor and they work their jobs they continue to sell their little statues of Artemis. And they're content and they're comfortable. Just like the cows on that conveyor belt. There's a way that seems right, but in the end, it's death. What about you? I give you an opportunity to respond today. Some of us need to confess sin. Some of you might need to confess sin to somebody who's in this building. I would challenge you to apply Matthew chapter 5. If you need to get up from your seat in theater 14, in this theater, in theater 9, where we're at right now, to get up and go to that person. Leave your gift on the altar. Go, make that right. Confess sin to them or forgive them if you need to forgive them. Some of you might need to go to another person, maybe somebody in your, in your group, in your e-group. Confess sin. Say, I have some things I want to share. We're going to have some people come up front and they'll stand up here in the front on the outside of these speakers. You want to talk to a real human about your sin? You want to hear the words that you're forgiven? Do you want somebody to pray with you? They'll be here. And we're all going to pray. If you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to enter into a spiritual life with Jesus then you can do that today. Here's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. All of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. If you want to enter into that relationship with Jesus, if you want to receive the gift of eternal life, it only comes through Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Romans chapter 10 tells us, verses 9 and 10, that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord. And you can do that too right now. I'm just going to ask us all to bow our heads and close our eyes. Some of you need to confess sin. Some of you need to repent. Some of you will need to come forward. But if you're going to ask Jesus to be your Savior right now, I would just ask, would you raise your hand and acknowledge that? I want to pray to ask Jesus to be my Savior today. I'm going to pray for you. Okay? I see somebody up in the front raising their hand. I'm trying to see the rest of the room, but you can raise your hand if you like. Almost as if you're saying right now, you're raising your hand and telling God, I, I want to trust Jesus to be my Savior today. I'm just going to begin us in prayer. The worship team is going to play some music. Really, that's um, so you don't hear people coughing and moving around and all those things. You continue to do business with the Lord, whatever it is you need to do. You need to confess sin. Maybe you need to get honest with yourself about your sin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our Holy God, thank you for being you. 
and not letting us be you. God, I, I come before you. I pray for my friends that we'd all humble ourselves before you. And that you would reveal to us things that maybe we don't like to talk about, we don't want to deal with. And you'd show us how your blood has taken care of those things. For those who need to confess sin to one another, I pray you'd move and put a heavy conviction on their hearts to do things that would require courage, to do things that would require boldness. And I pray that you would do that today. For those who need to come forward, they might just need to pray with someone or have someone pray for them. I pray that you'd give them the humility, the courage to be able to do those things. I'm just going to let you continue to pray. And uh, we'll have some people that are off to the side. I'll be off to the side. On my right, um, your left, uh, if you're here in the theater and the video venue as well, um, we'll have some people that, that we trust um, that will be up there. If you're a group leader in our church, just so you know, anytime we do this, you're welcome to come up front to pray with people. And the rest of you, I'll just let you continue to talk to the Lord.